Our reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and through to chapter 2, verse 5, and it's found on page 1183 in the Church Bible. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the Church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Amen. We've set the theme, as we've been thinking with the children, Jesus, the mystery of God. And if you keep uh, the Bible open in front of you, you will see that certain things will unfold uh, before us. Uh, For those who may be here for the first time, that we are pursuing um, quite an in-depth study in the book of Colossians. And uh, we're coming now to uh, the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the second. Uh, I want you to just think with me for a moment. It's almost like as if I can suggest now that to give you two keys, two main uh, themes, if you like, that will help not only to open the book, but to help us to understand it more fully. Okay? Paul's, the first thing then, Paul's purpose in writing is he and you see it coming out in, in, in chapter 1 there, his prayer of thanksgiving, that here is a community of people, very different in background and education and age and all of that, but they have certain things in common, and part of that means that they meet together, which is something we call the church. And the essentials that they have in common are faith, hope, and love. And that becomes the the recurring theme in most, indeed, if not all of Paul's letters. It would be a very fruitful study for you just to, it wouldn't take much if you've got a concordance, so just see in all of his letters how he begins. And an interesting thing to do as well is, why is it sometimes he leaves one out deliberately? And then in the rest of the letter, he pursues that which is lacking in the life of the church. So it's an interesting study. So that's the first reason. Here it is. Here's a community of people who, though they may have lots of things in common, supremely, this is what unites them. 
faith, hope, and love. Then I suggest to you the second reason for his letter is this. Now then, so you have faith in Jesus Christ. I want that faith to be stronger. I want it to be stronger. So you have a hope that beyond this life, you're going to have an encounter with the living Lord. I want it to be clearer, more certain. You have a love. Yes, you came into the world and a love for your parents and children and friends. Yes, but now you have agape love. And I want that love to be deepened. This is how we do it. So I suggest to you that quite simply is why he's writing. And, and of course then you have to say almost at the beginning, now do the application yourself. How is your faith? How firm is it? How certain is your hope? How authentic is our love? See, that's the exercise. This is not a theoretical thing. So, Colossians is to cultivate all three. To encourage them to grow so that as the church begins to grow, its roots are in these three areas. So it's obvious then, in the light of that, that healthy Christians produce a healthy church. The question that we posed last time, and these things are going to come up quite quickly in front of you, just for the purpose of the exercise, that I'd like to ask then, what in your view is a healthy church? If you had a piece of paper now, what would you write? In your view, what is a healthy church? Why do you come to this church? Why do you come to church at all? What, what, are, you, what are you looking for? And how would you say about another church, perhaps, or this one, it's not very healthy? What's the, what's the criteria? How do you measure it? Okay? So, you'd want to say, well, I'd want an active church. I wouldn't want a passive church. I would want a church where everybody is involved. That would be some achievement, wouldn't it? Because some people love being spectator church. Or somebody else would say, no, I really want to belong to a growing church. Not a church where the same people are there every Sunday, all of the time, but a church that's growing and new people, new challenges. What have we done this morning? We've, I hope, all of us, given sacrificially because we are in a wealthy part of the world, and some people would say, you know, the yardstick really for anybody is if your faith doesn't reach into your pocket, what sort of faith is it? So you'd say, I think about a giving church. A giving church. The world looks on and says in the recession, people have sustained their giving. That's a powerful witness. Now, somebody else would say, it's an evangelistic church. The danger about being an evangelical church is every Sunday you say the same thing and the same thing. But being an evangelical church, he says, this is what I've got and this is what I'm sharing with others. This is what I'm sharing. Well, then somebody says, a missionary church. A church in which we are willing to sacrifice, not just by giving money, and actually that's quite easy, even in the recession. 
but giving our best leaders. Some church leaders are very reluctant to do that. So we ask the question, why should we say Paddy is leaving us? We are sacrificing financially to support him through college. It's not cheap. And give him housing. Because we would want to be a missionary church. Not just out there, but here and down there. Or, this would be good, wouldn't it? A smooth running church. Where everybody whose name is on the rotor actually turns up. Where you don't have to make appeals all the time. Or a spirit-filled church which is dynamic and vibrant, where all the gifts are used and people are on their tiptoes. That would be a brilliant church, wouldn't it? Or, as I had an email from a former church member here, Kike and Yuna, he's going to church in Florida, which has 6,000 people. A big church. Well, what would you say? The list, of course, I guess is endless. Well, the obvious, and we've already answered the question, really, that a healthy church is a church where these three things are present and growing and impacting each other and the community in which we live. Hence, we're looking. Otherwise, it's merely a theoretical exercise. So in this opening section of Colossae, one thing seems to lead to another. There's a progression. So healthy believers produce a healthy church. And a healthy church produces healthy leaders. What sort of leaders do we have? And what sort of leaders are we producing? Uh, I read this notice outside a church and it said this. Wanted. Minister for growing church. I'll read it to you. With this question, what is a healthy leader? In your view. Here it is. Must have experience as shepherd, office manager, educator, salesman, diplomat, referee, writer, theologian, politician, motivational speaker, boy scout leader, psychologist, social worker, funeral director, wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, church planter and missionary. Helpful but not essential, landscape gardener, interior decorator, musician, athlete and stand-up comedian <laughs> should have should have answers to all of life's tough questions about suffering, dying, God's sovereignty must hold firm convictions on every topic but not be allowed to ruffle anybody's feathers <laughs> must think as deeply as C.S. Lewis preach as passionately as C.H. Spurgeon and listen as sensitively like James Dobson Sweet disposition required at all times, even when having a bad day. Must have wisdom and experience of age, but of the energy and glow of youth. Required to attend every meal and potluck supper, yet stay trim and slim. 24-hour-a-day availability, a must, phone provided. P.S. must spend quality time at home with family. <laughs> Applicant's wife. Must be both stunning and plain. Quiet yet outgoing. 
She should keep home immaculate, but be available to teach in Sunday school, organize socials, and discipline other women. Applicants' children must be exemplary in conduct and character at all times, yet no different from other children. Must dress decently. Salary, not commensurate with experience. No overtime pay. Frequent criticism, no smoking, no dancing, no drinking, no movie watching. Please apply. <laughs> now then, I don't think you'd want, well, it's ridiculous. But you see what they're saying. That's not a leader. So, if we were to ask for the purpose of our reading this morning, what is a healthy leader, not just a pastor, but S Club and all the leadership that we have. If you and I are willing to expose our hearts and minds to God's word in the power of the Spirit, then Paul says, I've got some suggestions, and here they are. A servant of the gospel would have and be characterized by these four things. First of all, what a, what a surprise, is somebody who is a sufferer for the gospel. You see that in verse 24. Now I rejoice, it's not Paul is masochistic here, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body which is the church. Now that's a tricky, it's a slippery verse and lots have been said about it. It's caused quite a bit of discussion. Let's just say this then. What it is not saying is this, that the affliction of Jesus isn't sufficient, therefore Christians have to suffer. It's not saying that. Otherwise, if Paul was saying that, he would have contradict, be contradicting what he's already said. So what he is saying is this, that suffering of all its various kinds, physical, psychological, mental, spiritual, and so on, suffering is a mark of Christian leadership. It's not that you want it, but sometimes you just can't avoid it. It's part of Christian ministry and authentic Christian experience. Now, there are lots of references there, and uh, uh, for the purpose of time, we won't pursue those. And what Paul is saying here is this, that there are things that hap are happening in his life that have hampered and frustrated him. He's in prison as he writes. And the things that, that, that he has set out, the goals, have been frustrated. And yet he can see that spiritually. He can see God's hand in it. And would that more of us could see God's hand in our suffering. And, and allow it to be redemptive in the sense that it brings blessing to others as people look on and see the, the bereavement that we've experienced it, the, the heartaches, the disappointments that we're going through. And it points to Jesus. The cross, therefore, is the pattern of Christian discipleship for us all. If any man will come after me, deny himself. That's a big ask, isn't it? Take up our cross and follow, follow, follow me. Secondly, a description of a servant of the gospel, and I'm suggesting that this is a description of all believers, really. We are all called to gossip the gospel. We're not silent witnesses. So in verse 24 also, he says, a servant of the church. 
So Paul's, Paul's suffering isn't meaningless. It's not nice to have suffering. It's something we'd rather avoid. But if it comes, can we see God's providence? What is this? If it's not meaningless, then what, why? Well, look what it says. For the sake of. Do you see that? I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of. That's so important. It's not for nothing. It's not bad luck. It's not in the wrong place at the wrong time. It is for the sake, and here's a play on words, Paul's body, Christ's body, the body of the church. You are the body of Christ. There's a lovely play of words there. And surely, let me say this, think about this. When Paul was on that, Saul as he was, Saul of Tarsus, on that road to Damascus, you'll remember it, it's, it's the famous conversion, isn't it? The most in the whole of Christian history. He sees a light and he falls to the ground. Saul, Saul, this is the question Jesus asked. And in this context, just think about it. Why do you persecute me? Why didn't he say, why are you giving my people a hard time? Why are you ravaging the church? Why persecute me? Now, what's the application pastorally? If you are criticizing the church, think, I am criticizing Jesus Christ in heaven. I've got to stop doing that. That is a bad habit. Why do you persecute me? And you see what he does. He never forgot that. Ever, ever. That, w that when you think of the church, you think of Jesus. He's a servant of the church. Why do you persecute me? And sadly the church, even from within, can be the butt of much criticism. For some people it's just a habit, a bad habit. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the point. So you're a servant of the church. A servant of the church. And you think of the church... You think of the body of Christ. Christ in glory and his body here on earth. A third thing he says is, and this is what we are trying to do in that little exercise with the children, a steward of the mystery. The mystery. See verses 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to God's people, the church. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's us, the glorious riches of this mystery. What is it? What is the mystery? Well, essentially, Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, steward of the mystery. It's not being mysterious or superstitious. I don't want to criticize uh, the, um, some 20,000 people who queued up to kiss the bones of St. Teresa in Liverpool Cathedral. The, 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 the mystery can become mysterious. Spirituality become superstitious. I'm not questioning their sincerity. But, but here is the mystery. And it is Jesus among us. Jesus among us. And anything else is a distraction. 
And so you see in chapter 2 and verse 18, for instance, just look at that. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So obviously that was an issue. Here's the mystery. Christ in you. And when Paul is writing, he's writing to people who have these private ceremonies, secret codes, the in-group, the out-group, the mystery group, hidden rituals. That was the prevailing culture. And he says, by the way, yes, we have a mystery, and it's Jesus. And he, he indwells you. He lives within you. So I can say then today, whatever our situation, we have a living hope. A living hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. And the mystery, it's this, the Gentiles are part of the same family. We take this for granted. We've had 2,000 years. But you know, for Jews it was a big ask. The Gentile dogs being brought into the kingdom. It was a scandal to Jews. It was offensive. Christ in you, the Messiah. And lastly, trying to answer this question for us, a servant of the gospel, a leader within the church today. And this is perhaps where it gets even more challenging. Somebody who is a struggler. Are you struggling? A struggler for believers. Depends, I suppose, what we are struggling about. Look, look at verse 28. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect, mature in Christ. To this end, and this is the language now, demanding language. To this end, I labor. Actually, the literal meaning is, I am in labor. It's a strange thing for a man to say that, isn't it? To this end, I am in labor, struggling with all its energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling. Struggling. So, a bit disappointment, I suppose, but it is authentic Christian living and authentic Christian serving. A struggler for fellow believers. For you. Perhaps alongside with you. The essence of all ministry surely ought to be we proclaim Him, not ourselves. It's about Jesus. It's all about Him. And Christ is central and Christ is essential to the whole process of this Christ-likeness. And that would be a good word for um, being perfect, being mature, being more like Him. I am more like Jesus in my attitude. I am more like Jesus in my relationships. It is a very powerful thing. And, and, and it often involves staying focused when all around there are distractions. When we have other priorities and actually Jesus is rather demanding and we're not prepared for the big struggle, the big push. 
It involves staying focused and it involves staying faithful. Faithful. Now, note also here, verse 29, frequently this idea of struggling and laboring. I just want you to turn towards the Old Testament, towards Galatians, about five pages, and you come to Galatians 4. It's page 1171. Here we come back to the, let's just be now specific. Let's not talk in generalities. Galatians 4 and verse 19. Look at Paul's relationship with this church and he says, My dear children, it's a very emotive language. My dear children, for whom I am again, again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Bad enough to be in labor once to bring children into the world. But Paul says, now, this is this idea of, of struggling, agonizing, agonizuma. It's a powerful word, labor. So he goes on to say, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. In a sense, he's wrapping them over the knuckles, saying that they're losing sight of Jesus and being distracted in other things. I am in labor for you until Christ is formed in you. It's very emotive language, isn't it? Just uh, one other reference. Turn to uh, John chapter 16. It's one of the verses that uh, I often give to young mums who have uh, just, uh, you go into the labor ward, as they used to call it, um, and uh, give a card, and underneath this verse. And now Jesus is using it. Same, same imagery. John chapter 16 and verse 21. Just the one verse. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. It's a struggle. It's, it's a, it's a labor. Okay? Because her time has come. And she can't say, well, I'm rather busy today. I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish, the struggle, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. And then Jesus goes on to say that. Now, is this theoretical to you? Do, do we know anything at all about, yes, trusting in Jesus Christ? And if it is true that we have joy that the world does not know, then surely authentic trust in Jesus is that we have struggle that the world doesn't know. And it isn't that Jesus has made a mistake. It is part of our leadership. Two tensions then as we close. For Paul's struggle. There is the negative Look in chapter 2 and verse 4. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Don't forget, he set out his stall, faith, hope, and love. Let nothing undermine that. Nothing. Ever. There's the constant danger of deception. That's why we, we have the creeds. It's, it's worth saying, isn't it, that the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, are given... 
to correct deficient teaching as it has been in the history of the church. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm writing this to you. Yes, faith, hope and love, but don't let one deceive you. Don't let them distract you. Go down blind alleys. But positively, look at chapter 2 and verse 5. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now let me give an illustration. Some of us, uh, week last Saturday, were, were uh, walking past the, the, not the Chilterns, Bridgeway. And I'm walking along with Peter Warner for a while. You walk with various people and you walk and talk. It's a brilliant way to get personal. Not sit in a room, walk. And um, I'm asking Peter how his son, Tom, who's in Afghanistan, how he's getting on. And um, he says all sorts of things, the challenge, the fear of parents getting a phone call. And then he said, the thing is though, what they learn is that they are orderly. They stick together. They don't get involved and can't get involved. It's more than their life is worth in issues outside of their remit. That's a marvelous picture, isn't it, of the church. You see what Paul says? He, he borrows the phrase from the, the, the Roman army with all of its discipline. And he says, you see, I, I delight to see how orderly you are. Orderly. No confusion. No risk takers outside of your remit. And then how firm. One of the things about being in the forces is that you stand shoulder to shoulder. Because you need each other. You watch out for one another. You cover one another. Your life depends on it. You see how orderly, standing firm, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, firm faith, growing, strong, secure. There is, there is a formidable enemy out there who is devious, who is sinister. If you saw the program on television this past week, that young man from the paratroop regiment, two legs, one arm blown off, trying to, trying to come to terms. Think of the spiritual casualties where people are just standing back, not involved, doing their own thing. It is so thoroughly, thoroughly unspiritual. Positively then, firm in faith, standing together. Why? As we close. Because the gospel is too precious to, to neglect. So believe it. Really believe it. And the gospel is too precious to compromise. And if, if in military terms we may need to defend it against those who would deny it. But sure. What a great delight last night there was. 60% of the people who here were unchurched people. That's an amazing thing. And listening to a clear gospel. What a, what a marvelous day of opportunity God has given us. So the gospel is precious. Too precious to hide.
too precious to keep to ourselves. We have to proclaim it. That's what he says. We proclaim him. Really is all about Jesus, isn't it? Ultimately, it's about him. I hope that you trust him. Really believe in him. Resolve to follow him. Come what may. Now you understand why Paul thinks that these, this trio, faith, hope and love, is so imperative, not just for the survival of the church, but for its growth and its development.